Welcome to episode 138, The Profound Impact of Sleep, Sleep Psychology Support and CBTI, featuring Dr. Kim Dwyer, licensed clinical psychologist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am joined by Dr. Kimberly Dwyer. Dr. Dwyer is a licensed clinical psychologist in Denver, and her specialization is basically all things anxiety and mindfulness, and that directly relates to our topic today about sleep. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Dwyer. Thanks so much for having me here, Beth. I'm I'm super excited to talk about sleep because I think we don't talk about it enough, and we were sharing a little bit before we started recording um, that not all professional um, educations really touch on sleep beyond the way it connects to different mental health issues. So being that we spend, you know, eight hours a day, that's a third of our life roughly sleeping, and we're working with human beings who sleep hopefully every night, it's an important topic. Yeah, I'm glad that we're discussing it. Because as you and I had discussed previously, I don't think it was ever really even discussed in my master's program other than the importance of sleep to certain diagnostic criteria. So, you know, there were air quotes about that. But other than that, a lot of us don't even know that much about what sleep hygiene really is and what sleep should look like. So, Kim, thank you for joining us to talk about this big topic. Tell us more about your background and how you came to have this particular specialization. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I've worked um, in a variety of settings, inpatient, uh, school, outpatient, you know, for other folks, for myself and running my own practice. And there's three pieces that I feel like I'm continually coming back to as far as the psychoeducational components that seem to affect everybody, no matter why they're coming in and showing up in front of me. And, and most of the people that are showing up uh, to work with me for therapy are dealing with stress, anxiety, life transitions, those sorts of things. And the, the three areas are sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And those seem to be, you know, kind of the cornerstones of physical care for the body. And I always think of this when my oldest child was born, the pediatrician's office gave us this manual sort of thing um, called the owner's manual and had a picture of a baby (laughs) on the front holding a set of car keys. And it was like, oh, well, this is helpful. And it had all the, you know, general fare and care and feeding of your infant. And, you know, what do you do? And when do you call the doctor? And what are, if you give Tylenol, what are the dosages based on weight and all that information, just like an owner's manual for a car. And for those who are listening who are parents, you might be able to relate to that um, experience when you have a very young child, but then we kind of like outgrow that infant owner manual. Mm -hmm. And then what do we do? Like, how do we, what's the owner manual for like the grown adult and how we take care of our body and meet our physical needs. And those physical needs are going to tie into not just physical health, but emotional and mental health and social health. And so it affects all areas of our life, um, those three components, but sleep is a big one. And there's just growing evidence of how sleep is impacting our physical wellness, our memory and learning, um, and certainly our emotional wellness in pretty much every every physical and mental diagnostic kind of category that we have. There's some role probably that sleep is playing. Mm-hmm. And if we can understand better how to meet our needs, get a good night's sleep, we can let 
that aspect of how our body cares for itself do what it's supposed to do. I'm glad you brought up that piece about the infant kind of care manual because I had the same experience as a parent. You know, what the the experts will train you when you have a infant is like you have to pay attention to sleep cues and when they yawn and then it's this mad rush to the crib um, to get the child down during that critical sleep window and you don't want to miss the window. Every mm-hmm. parent knows you don't want to miss that window because then the baby's not going to sleep and then they'll stay up and then everybody's cranky <laughs> and it's just downhill from there. And it, I completely agree. That exercise for me as a parent really caused me to look at my own sleep hygiene and acknowledge how much in our culture we don't pay attention to. Well, we we know we yawned, but we don't actually think that means anything. <laughs> right. We're just like, oh, I need to finish this episode of Shit's Creek or whatever it is that we're doing. And so we just we blaze, we push right through it. And then there are these consequences. So Dr. Dwyer, why don't we start there? Why don't you start talking about what healthy sleep even means from a research standpoint? Sure. So the way sleep researchers measure sleep is based on the the EEG states that we're in. So the states of brain waves that are produced. And if we were to hook somebody up to an EEG, we'd be putting electrodes in various spots on their head and then picking up the electrical activity that comes from the neurons firing. So the first stage of sleep, so we go from awake, we go into stage one sleep. And if you, people who are listening can't see my hands, but if I'm, I'm kind of gesturing, if we're starting at this baseline level, then we're kind of like dipping down below. You know, if awake is above and, and sleep is below, we, we kind of stay at this border of awake asleep, and then we dip down into stage one sleep, which is very light sleep. If we were hooked up to an EEG, we'd see alpha and theta waves. Alpha waves are what we see when somebody's deeply relaxed, even when they're not asleep. And that light sleep stage will last for when we first fall asleep, this changes across the night. But when we first fall asleep, we'll stay in that light sleep phase for roughly seven minutes. Um, An interesting thing that I didn't know until I started really digging into literature in preparation for our talk, there's something called hypnic jerks, which are just kind of limb jerks. Like it's not restless leg syndrome. It's a different thing. Those happen in light sleep. And if you're anything like me, those happen and you go, oh, what was that? And then you wake wake yourself back up. So if you're listening to this and you have that experience, that's a totally normal thing in light sleep. Uh, It probably means that you're starting to drift off. When we're in that stage of sleep, we're very easy to rouse. So we're still responsive to noises in our environment. Things like that are going to potentially wake us up in that phase. After that, we dip into sleep uh, stage two, which is more slowing on the EEG, roughly 25 minutes. Across the course of the night, it's about 50% of our sleep phase. And on a EEG recording, that we see something called sleep spindles, which are kind of like bursts of activity that are just characteristic of that. Um, and they're associated a little bit with consolidation of memory is what I read. Then we go into stage three sleep. And for people um, who've read about sleep in the past, we used to call it stage three and we had stage four. Now it's all stage three. So stage three sleep is deep, slow wave sleep. And it's characterized by delta waves, which are slow waves on the EEG. That's our restorative sleep. People are hardest to waken when they're in that sleep. If you've ever been woken up when you're in that sleep, you're probably kind of groggy and out of it. And it takes a little while to start processing again because you were in such a deep sleep. And that's the stage of sleep where we have a lot of body repair, growth and development, immune system functions improve. The body's just doing a lot of work in that. The brain is doing a lot of work in that stage of sleep. We're taking new memory and consolidating it into longer-term memory storage. 
lots of good stuff's happening. And in that deep sleep phase is proportionately larger in the earlier half of the night. So we're getting more of our deep sleep early in the night. And then later in the night, we're moving more into light sleep and REM sleep that I'll talk about in a minute. So that stage one, stage two, and stage three sleep are all called non-REM or non-rapid eye movement sleep. Another way of thinking about that is the mind is quiet, at least there's a lot going on in, in the brain, but the conscious mind is quiet, but the body's active. So we still can move about and not surprisingly, that's when things like sleepwalking occur. Sleepwalking doesn't happen when we're dreaming because our body is quiet when we're dreaming. But in those deeper stages of uh, non-REM sleep, our, our brain is busy, our body might be moving somewhat, but our conscious mind is, is pretty tuned out and turned off. We go into stage four sleep, and that's REM sleep, so rapid eye movement or dream sleep. And that is what's associated with dreaming. It has a big impact on mood regulation for and our emotional regulation for the following day. Most people average four to five REM cycles or dream cycles per night, and they increase in length as we get closer to the morning. So what we can see, because our sleep isn't like a constant, you know, so many minutes per hour of each mm -hmm. stage of sleep consistently across the night, if we're cutting ourselves short early in the night, that's when we're getting deep sleep. If we're getting up when we haven't gotten a full night's rest, we're cutting off some of our REM sleep time. And even our light sleep time is, is proportionately higher, closer to wake up time, closer, closer to morning. So when we're not getting enough sleep, we're, we are cutting ourselves short of important parts of the whole sleep cycle. So then as the night goes on, if we were looking at this, and I would encourage people who are interested to go like look up sleep cycles and what this looks like, they call it sleep architecture because the graphs almost look like little buildings. So we have in the early part of the night, we have a, like almost like a longer cycle where we're going from light sleep pretty quickly into deep sleep. And then we're popping back up into REM sleep or dream sleep, which is closer to awakeness than it is to that deep sleep in terms of, you know, how deep we are in it. And then after that first cycle, then the cycle start to shorten. We're spending less time in that deep sleep and more time in that light sleep and that dream sleep. These sleep stages. So as you're talking about this, I assume when you say we, you're talking about like ideal healthy sleep. Yes. So the way that exactly. we really should be sleeping is jumping through or not even jumping, but slowly and gently moving through these different stages of sleep and that the combination of all of those creates sleep health when it when it happens correctly. Exactly. When we're talking about sleep, I think pretty much all of us, we're probably primed to this belief that we need eight hours of sleep. That's like the magic number. Talk to me about that magic number. How does that hold up against the research? Yeah, so eight hours is a lovely average, but in terms of applying it to everybody, you know, averages are just averages. And if we were to take like average body size, average height, average shoe size, we would have a number that we come up with. And it would be very easy to see, you know, like this average size does not apply to this particular person. They might be, you know, bigger than average or smaller than average or wherever they land on that. And sleep is kind of the same way. There's not a magic number, which is important because some people hear, I need eight hours of sleep and then get very stressed. Like, I didn't get eight hours of sleep. Now my day is going to be shot. How am I going to do this presentation I need to do at work? How am I going to deal with 
managing my children and helping them with homework when I'm exhausted and I can't manage. And then we get into these cognitive distortions, which we'll talk more about later when we talk about um, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. But then those distortions perpetuate a cycle of poor sleep because we're stressed. We're stressed out about sleep. Mm -hmm. The, the recommendations for healthy adults are anywhere from seven to nine hours. You know, that's the average amount. If eight is the absolute average, seven to nine is kind of the range for healthy sleep. The problem tends to be more on the end that a lot of us aren't getting enough sleep. A lot of us are underfed in the sleep category, if we could call it that. You know, we're not spending enough time sleeping. Part of it is that we're not spending enough time in bed in the ideal circumstances to get sleep because whatever reason, we're staying up late, we're pushing to be more productive, we're getting up super early because we have commitments for the day. And if we don't give our body enough time, you know, both during that bedtime routine time when we're trying to settle down and calm and get ready for bed, we need that time to be calm and uninterrupted. And then we need that uninterrupted time in the bed with the ideal circumstances and environment and whatnot to get a good night's sleep. As you talk about this, you know, with this scientific backing. I think because sleep becomes a very emotional topic when we don't get enough sleep or we feel like we slept too much, that's another phenomenon. I, at least in my conversations with my friends, with my family members, with my clients, sleep is usually a very emotional topic. And we kind of cling to these certain figures about the way that sleep is supposed to be. And there's so many misconceptions and myths about you know what, basically what healthy sleep is for each of us. And that's why I'm glad for this topic. But even that idea of I, I need a certain amount of sleep or else, um, I've also done a lot of research about sleep and so many of the things that I assumed to be true were wrong. Um, so talk to me about some of those misconceptions, like you know the eight-hour rule being one of them, that there's this range. What are some of the other misconceptions about sleep? A big one is I don't need that much sleep. And it's not surprising because we do this in other aspects of our life, but we don't have great insight, honestly, into how much sleep we're actually getting. Like when people actually log their sleep, they often are getting more sleep than they think they're getting. Uh, but also what metric is any, you know, one not educated in sleep science person using to determine did I get enough sleep or not? And they're probably using do I feel sleepy as, as their metric. And that's not the entire picture. So there's there's two pieces. So this is a good kind of segue into talking into like, why do we sleep? Like, what are the conditions biologically that help us to go to sleep, to fall asleep? Sleep scientists talk about process S and process C. So process S is sleep need and sleep drive. So you can think about that as the physical push to sleep. Imagine a person who will just assume they are well-rested. They got a good night's sleep. They wake up in the morning. Their sleep drive their process S number is low because they just got up. <laughs> they're, they're, they're healthy. And biologically, it's a chemical called adenosine that builds up in the brain while we're awake. So the longer we're awake, the more of that chemical builds up in the brain. So we go about our day as the day goes on. Like if this person got up at seven in the morning, their level of adenosine, their sleep drive is going to be low. As the day progresses, if we made a nice little graph, it would just grow steadily through the day until we hit a peak probably around, you know, for a healthy adult, probably nine or 10 o'clock if they got up at seven, maybe a little bit later, where it's time to go to bed. They feel sleepy. They've had a buildup of this chemical in their brain. It hasn't been discharged. They took a nap. They might have discharged it, which is why napping for people who have a sleep problem, napping is not recommended because we want to build that drive for sleep so that when they go to bed, they're ready to go to sleep. 
But if we're napping, then we're decreasing some of that chemical. I want to point out what you just said, because I think that was really powerful, because I'm thinking of so many clients that are like, well, I didn't sleep well, and I have problems with insomnia, so I take a long midday nap. Will you restate what you just said? So what we want for, for people who are struggling to sleep, we want them to have the best chances and best opportunity to sleep when they go to bed at night. So in order for that to happen, we need that sleep drive to build during the day and get to them to the point of, you know, quote, normal bedtime, whatever that is for that person, so that when they go to bed, they're tired. If they took a nap, say at three o'clock in the afternoon, they're dropped, they're decreasing some of that chemical. So when we sleep, that chemical starts to metabolize in our brain. So just to make it easy to think about, let's say you need, and I'm totally making this up right now, but say you need 100, you know, 100 units of this chemical, and we're going to get that by being awake for a certain period of time, say 14 hours or something. And somebody, you know, builds up to like 70 and it's three o'clock in the afternoon, they take a nap and then they metabolize a bunch of it. And then they're going to drop back down. It's going to take them longer to, of being awake to get to the point where they're sleepy again. And again, those numbers are just numbers I made up for the point of an example, but you know, I think we can extrapolate from that. Like the longer that we're awake, the more that sleep drive, that adenosine chemical is going to build up, and then the easier it's going to be to fall asleep. And here's the piece that is super interesting: um, our favorite beverage, beverage chemical. I was going to say chemical uh-huh. or substance of choice: coffee. You know, tea with caffeine in it. So caffeine blocks the adenosine receptors in the brain. So that chemical, as it builds up, we get sleepy. But if we've filled in all those adenosine receptors with caffeine, then we're not going to feel sleepy, which is why caffeine works to keep us from feeling sleepy. But again, if we're, you know, drinking beverages with caffeine in them late in the day, then we're not going to notice our own physical drive for sleep because, you know, if we think of those receptors like keyholes, we've thrown a key into every keyhole. They're already blocked with caffeine. So caffeine also has a half-life of roughly five hours. So if we stop drinking coffee at three in the afternoon, we have 50% of that caffeine still in our body at eight o'clock. We have 25% of that caffeine still in our body at one in the morning. So depending on your own, you know, and bodies are different. Some are going to metabolize faster than others, but we have to, you know, each of us really be honest with ourselves of how we're impacted by you know, chemicals like caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, you know, any chemical that we're putting into our body um, and the way that might be, you know, impacting the way we sleep. Keep going. I mean, there's so many myths here. So let's- <laughs> There's let's a lot talk, to talk about with this topic. Let's talk about the uh, idea that if we don't sleep well on Tuesday night, if we sleep in on, on Thursday, we will be fine. Talk to me yeah. about that. So sleep isn't a bank account, unfortunately. We can't undo missed sleep. You know, we can notice what's going on. We can right the ship, basically, like correct our course and and try and get a better sleep. And I don't say this to like freak people out. If I had a bad night's sleep, I'm doomed. I'll never get that night back. You know, you can change course, make a course adjustment and move in the right direction. But it doesn't work like that. The, The things that are happening in the brain need to happen each night. You know, the memories, the new memory that we pick up during the day learning uh, needs to get moved from one area of the brain into another area of the brain. And we know what happens during sleep. And if I don't sleep well, you know, on Wednesday, those things that I learned earlier in the day on Wednesday, I don't have the opportunity then on Friday to sleep an extra hour and gel that stuff into memory. Like it's gone. So, you know, doing the best that we can 
uh, and using the tools that we have to set ourselves up for a good night's sleep is just, it's going to benefit us um, every day. So that, you know, the adenosine and that sleep drive, we call that um, process S. But the other piece that helps us to sleep, um, we call process C, which is circadian rhythms. So circadian, probably people listening have heard of circadian rhythms. It's like our diurnal, roughly day-long rhythm to alert in the morning as the sun's coming up and go to sleep in the evening as the sun's going down. So that's based on biological signals that come from both our body and our brain um, to keep us awake during the day, to inhibit us from sleeping during the day and help us to sleep at night and inhibit wakefulness at night. So it's roughly the same time each morning uh, that that alerting signal is at its peak, and then it dissipates over the day. So then we have those two factors. We have that sleep drive, or process S, is that chemical building up because we're awake, and we have process C, which is that alerting signal from our circadian rhythm, and they're working together. So we hopefully wake up refreshed. That adenosine, process S, is low, and process C our circadian rhythm that alerts us is high. Then we go across the day, the sun's starting to sink in the sky. Our alerting signal from our circadian rhythm is getting low. And that process S, that adenosine chemical is building up in our brain, telling us it's time to go to sleep. And those two working together, I don't have this strong alerting circadian rhythm signal. And I do have this strong sleep push signal. Now I can go to sleep. And circadian rhythms uh, pick up on light. So that's, you know, our big um, modern world problem is that we have a lot of opportunity for artificial light. And if you think about people hundreds of thousands of years ago, not even hundreds of thousands, 200 years ago, we didn't have electric light the way we do, you know, now we had maybe gas light or we had candles, which are not as bright as, you know, the lights we all have surrounding us all the time. Um, and our brain is you know, monitoring the amount of light that's coming in through our eye, goes to an area in the brain that picks that up that's very closely tied to our, our circadian rhythm. So the combination of light, and then the other thing that happens naturally in our environment, most places in the world, as the sun starts to sink in the sky, the temperature drops. So we have both a signal from light and from temperature that tell us it's time to get to bed. So no surprise at all, two of the items that are, if you look at like a list of sleep hygiene strategies, two things on there are make sure there's zero light in the bedroom to the best of your ability and have the bedroom slightly cooler. You know, have the temperature in your house drop a little bit at night so that your body gets those signals. Hey, it's time to go to bed. There's so much here. And again, I just keep thinking about clients and just the amount of anxiety about sleep. One of the things that I've experienced myself, I think everyone has, is that um, middle of the night phenomenon where we become mathematicians, that we're awake and then we look at the clock and then we go, okay, I need to wake up at 6.15 and it's now 2.44 and that means I'll have X number of, nope, nope, there goes another minute. I'll have X number of hours and minutes, you know, and then and then we tell ourselves this fable about here are the consequences of me getting, you know, getting poor sleep tonight. I'm going to blow that presentation and I'll fall asleep in all of my sessions. And we come up with all this stuff that builds our anxiety. I think we've all been there. Or maybe I'm just telling myself we've all been there because I've been there. I know I've been there. I, I've, I know I've my clients my have been there. I've been there. And one of the biggest mistakes I made as a teenager babysitting a child once was to tell him, oh, if you can't fall asleep, just come out and, you know, when it says 10, 15 on the clock, come out and 
we'll figure out what to do. Of course, as like a 17, 18 year old, I had no idea what to do. And like clockwork, that child came out at 10, 15 and said, hey, I'm still awake. It's like, well, because you were watching the clock. So right. another sleep hygiene strategy is if possible, like get rid of the clock in the bedroom. You know, if you if you wear like a Fitbit or something to bed, do your best not to check the time on it. If you have a digital clock, consider moving it out of the room or at least turn the face of it. It's also emitting light. So that's something that personally I've taken that out of my bedroom. Um, but the other piece that you bring up is then we get into the cognitive distortion yeah. of what does this mean? So here's another important thing for people to know. Most people wake up at some point during the night. It doesn't always register to our awareness because we usually fall back asleep relatively quickly. And people that wake up and can't fall back asleep, that's a different issue. That's sleep maintenance, insomnia. But waking up to just because you wake up or to use the restroom or you know, brief wake-ups where you fall back asleep in the grand scheme of life and sleep are not super concerning and they're relatively normal. Going back to this idea of sleep hygiene, thinking again, as a parent, you know, we are looking for yawning or rubbing eyes or appearing glassy eyed. What are the cues as adults that we blow right through that we need to start listening to? And, and if we don't listen, what's the consequence? Yeah, I'd say one of them is that we we're masking we're masking both of those processes. So process S and process C, mm. our sleep drive and our circadian rhythm. We're masking our circadian rhythm with interior light, especially light that goes right into the eyes. So when I'm talking with clients about this, I'll hold up my cell phone. <laughs> and you know, when I'm using my cell phone, it's probably like a foot away from my eyes so that I can read it because it's relatively small, right? So we're, we're sending a lot of light. And I know you can do like blue light filters and whatnot on there, but we're also... The content on that, even if we get rid of the light or we minimize the light, the content that we might be consuming is often right. very activating. Agitating. We're, yeah, if we're reading, you know, news stories on our phone in the 30 minutes before we go to bed. Watching NCIS or, or old episodes of Dexter. Exactly, exactly. And some people are more sensitive, you know, to that to content than other people. But regardless, so we're, we're bringing in light and we're also bringing in activating content that does not have the signal of like, slow down, start getting ready for bed, you know, think about what we would probably do for a baby, give them a bottle or nurse them rock in a chair, you know, read a book, talk in quiet voices, put on quiet music, like we do a great job, at least the way we teach ourselves to do it of, of setting the stage for babies to sleep. And then we expect an adult to, you know, go straight from dinner and right. clean up and watching high intensity television, having, you know, a dispute about paying the bills or whatever other household management issues there might be, and then pop the lights off and I'm supposed to go to sleep immediately. So, you know, we do need to like send those signals to our body. Okay, we're starting to slow down. We're starting to wind down. And that hour or so before bed, we could really benefit from treating that as like sacred time of wind down like what does your bedtime routine need to look like do you take a hot bath or shower which actually because we're in heat when we do that we're bringing our blood to the surface and then we get out of the shower or the bath and our body cools like our core temperature cools because we brought blood to the surface that's going to cool down our core body temperature and help us be ready to go to bed because now we have the signal okay things are cooling down time to start going to sleep do we um 
listen to music, do some meditations, use some relaxation exercises, um, read from a paper book where we don't have light coming into our brain. You know, think about the kinds of things that are going to be really calming, restful, and start sending those signals that we're going to bed. And the other benefit of having a routine, if you think about this from a behavioral perspective, if every night I do a certain, you know, series of things, like let's just say I um, take a shower, I dry my hair, I read my book for 15 minutes, um, I listen to some quiet music, I'm trying to think of one more, and maybe I do a relaxation exercise. So now I've set up five potential cues for sleep if I'm doing these things every night. If, I, if those things are followed by going to sleep, then my, my brain is going to start to associate, okay, these are the things that happen, and then I sleep. It's, it's just a conditioned response. So we're, we're setting ourselves, and that's what we're doing for the baby when we're rocking them in the chair and we're playing the lullabies and reading Goodnight Moon or whatever we're reading. You know, we're, we're setting up that conditioned kind of chain of events, and we can do that for ourselves as well. You had mentioned this idea of the range of the right amount of sleep. And I know in my research as well, finding that that range was actually much larger than I had expected it to be. And also those fluctuations that are happening as we age, knowing that teenagers need more sleep than older adults. And typically as we age, we need less sleep. I remember having a conversation with an older family member where they're like, you know, I can't sleep that much. And I'm like, well, how much are you, are you sleeping? And do you feel rested? And when we talked about it, the conversation was like, oh, yeah, I feel fine. I just feel like I shouldn't be waking up at 530 in the morning. And I'm like, like, well, why? Like, so we were just talking about it because these assumptions we make, you know, I think can inhibit our um, experience of sleep. For someone who's trying to figure out how much sleep their body actually needs, how do they do that? So ideally, we wake up, you know, every everybody's a little bit different. I was going to say everybody probably is a little bit groggy when they get up. Some people are probably ready to, you know, jump out of bed and you know, run a marathon. Some of us who are not morning people need a little slower <laughs> introduction to the day. Um, but ideally, we're waking up feeling relatively rested, relatively ready to get going. Ideally, if we sleep, if we have enough sleep, we don't need an alarm clock to wake us up. You know, we're just getting up naturally because it's time to get up. We've got our body's gotten what it needs. If we look at guidelines, uh, National Sleep Foundation guidelines across the lifespan, so newborns, 14 to 17 hours of sleep, they're sleeping most of the day and their brain is super active. Like I always think about this when I'm talking to people about uh, cognitive therapy and concept formation, like babies come into the world with everything is new. Nothing fits into a concept. Like their, their brain is like in overdrive trying to make the, all these associations. So they're sleeping a lot. Uh, infants, 12 to 15 hours. Toddlers, 11 to 14 hours. Preschoolers, 10 to 13 hours. School-aged children are 9 to 11 hours. Teens, 8 to 10. Adults, 7 to 9. And then older adults, 7 to 8 are the recommendations. And then there's also shifts in our circadian rhythms as, as we move through life. So babies you know, don't really follow a circadian rhythm. Anybody who's had a baby has been up in the middle of the night because their baby's yep. up in the middle of the night. Uh, as as children move into teenage years, their circadian rhythm shifts a bit. So they're alerting later in the morning. So there needs to be more sunlight out for them to hit that alert point. So anybody who's had a teenager and has them sleeping in until noon on the weekends, like not unusual at all, pretty normal based on their circadian rhythm. And then they're going to stay up later because they're not ready for bed. That process C hasn't dropped off for them to go to sleep at 10 or 11 o'clock. So they're staying up much later. 
Conversely, when we move into older adult phase, our circadian rhythm shifts a little bit earlier. So we're ready for sleep earlier and we're waking up earlier. And that can create all kinds of interesting things when we have a world that tends to operate on this nine to five schedule. You know, our world's not super accommodating of people either because of a different phase of life, you know, needing a, a different kind of um, sleep schedule or just variations within individuals. You know, some individuals, you know, are more the, the quote morning lark or the night owl. And culturally, if you think about survival of the species, it benefits us to have people that are early risers and, and late to go to bed people because it means more people are awake, you know, across the span of the day. Like we can protect the group if there's people that tend to be up until, you know, midnight or one in the morning. And then there's other people that are waking up much earlier when, you know, maybe the teenagers are still all in bed asleep. One of the things that you said that I want to go back to was this idea that if our bodies have gotten enough sleep and there aren't, and I'm adding like an asterisk here, so there aren't other processes, medical issues, mental health issues that are in interfering in it, when it's time for our bodies to wake up, they should wake up. And my next thought when you said that was just like, okay, when you're working with whoever it is that's saying, well, I have to have eight alarms in order to get out and I out of bed and I have one on the other side of the room. And then I also ask my loved one to come wake me up and, you know, all of these things that that should really be an automatic indication to us of, like this person is not getting enough sleep. And so it's not necessarily that they or that they have a sleep disorder. Um, but that awareness of zooming out and seeing the different factors that are all coming into play. So we talked at the very beginning about how many of us have been trained to assess sleep, you know, insomnia or difficulty falling asleep, different types of hallucinations, nightmares, night terrors, things like that as part of diagnostic criteria. Tell me about the overlap with medical illness, because I have seen real time how medical illnesses, different ones, whether it's diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, postpartum depression, like so many different things can impact sleep. Tell me a little bit more about that and what we need to keep in mind clinically. Yeah, I think a big thing is we need to be asking, we need to be asking the questions and we need to be asking them in a bunch of different ways. So we need to be asking about, um, obviously about medical issues that somebody might be managing. Um, we know, you know, as you mentioned, that different medical issues are going to potentially make it easier or harder to sleep or, or impact the sleep cycle. And we also know that for a lot of medical issues, getting a good night's sleep is going to help our immune system. It's going to help, you know, manage like in diabetes, it helps us to manage blood sugar. Um, getting good night's sleep is you know, certainly important for people that are diabetic. But the other piece of that is also the medications that we might be taking and how those are going to impact sleep. So some of the medical issues that are associated with insomnia and, and sleep issues, um, hyperthyroidism is one, dementia, and there's a lot of information about dementia, both the role of dementia in being able to sleep because of the areas of the brain that are responsible for deep sleep get impacted by dementia, but also it creates a vicious cycle of them when we're not getting enough sleep, our brain isn't doing like the cleanup that it needs to do to clear out those plaques that build up uh, with Alzheimer's disease. Um, certain cancers can impact sleep, uh, HIV can impact sleep, respiratory issues can impact sleep. So we probably all know a little bit or have heard about sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is when, uh, obstructive sleep apnea is when uh, we aren't able to get enough oxygen essentially, uh, usually when we're sleeping because of 
the way our body is shaped, structures in our mouth you know, and nose area, things like that. Um, and the brain has, you know, an automatic override that says, hey, you're not getting enough oxygen, wake up. And that snaps us out of sleep. So it disrupts our sleep. Um, but other respiratory issues, allergies, asthma, chronic congestion, coughing, you know, you know all things that can wake us up. Um, GI issues like gastro gastroesophageal reflux will wake folks up. Uh, so important to know and treat that if you have that, but also to know the impact of different foods, especially close to bedtime on your ability to sleep and on the production of acid. Uh, chronic pain can certainly impact sleep. If we're in bed feeling uncomfortable, it's going to be harder to get to sleep. And it gives us a lot of time to really start obsessing about sleep and about pain and, and what's going to happen the next day for sure. The arthritis, migraines, fibromyalgia, um, it's all for folks who are dealing with those and insomnia, it's important for a pain specialist to be involved to make sure that they're, you know, getting full like wraparound care for those issues. Um, needing to get up to go to the bathroom during the night is definitely something that can happen. Um, and that tends to increase with age, you know, related to both, um, just structural changes and changes in muscle tone and things like that, that happen with age. But the, an interesting one is medications. And I want to just go through this list because there are so many medications that impact sleep. Um, and it's just really important to know that. And some of these are medications that are routinely given to folks with mental health issues. So these are probably folks that we're seeing in our offices. So lots of antidepressants impact sleep. Um, the list that I'm I read from says Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Celexa, Effexor, Wellbutrin, Lexapro, and Cymbalta all have some impact on sleep. Now, again, like that doesn't mean if anybody's taking one of those that they should automatically assume they're going to struggle with sleep, but it's something to be aware of. High blood pressure medications can impact sleep. Um, some of the cholesterol medications impact sleep. Antiarrhythmia drugs uh, impact sleep or can. Uh, steroids, corticosteroids like prednisone can impact sleep. Bronchodilators for asthma uh, can impact sleep. Parkinson's drugs, some of the anti-epileptic drugs, including Lamictal, which we know is also used for mood stabilization. So we might see folks on Lamictal. Decongestants, anybody who's taken Sudafed <laughs> and woken up and stared at the ceiling at three in the morning knows that that has an impact on sleep. Stimulant medications, like medications for ADHD, definitely can impact sleep. The good news with those is if they are properly dosed, they should be metabolized before somebody goes to bed. But it's something to keep in mind if you're treating somebody with ADHD and they're struggling to sleep, you know, maybe it's worth a med check or, or just tracking what's going on with their sleep to see if that's a piece of it. Um, and then thyroid medications like Synthroid um, and some of the other thyroid medications can impact sleep. I think these things are important for us to be aware of because of how basic sleep is to our functioning and our survival. And my experience having worked quite a bit like you during my career with women and the impact of different hormones on sleep, I mean, prolactin, which is what the body's producing to allow breastfeeding also can have a profound impact on sleep cycles and ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. But so all of these things, it, it seems like this really simple concept, but the more you dive into sleep, you realize it's very, very complicated. Um, and also the other thing that I've come to appreciate as well, working with functional medicine doctors are uh, the frequency of like nutrient deficiencies related uh, to insomnia or sleep problems. So I've seen research coming out. We know sometimes vitamin D, um, zinc, magnesium is another one, but iron as well, low ferritin. So these kind of things 
also for us as providers to not just assume that necessarily this is something behavioral, but making sure that we're involving, this is one of those things that this is when we say, when's the last time you had a physical? When's the last time you had your blood work and try to encourage our clients to have blood work so that we know, I mean, maybe this is a nutrient deficiency that's causing this um, and it can actually be really easily corrected. So Dr. Dwyer, why don't we spend a little time, tell me the consequences of poor sleep. Like what happens when we don't get enough sleep? Um, and what of that, I guess, you know, one of the message we tell our, messages we tell ourselves at three o'clock in the morning is like, well, I won't be able to X, Y, Z today because I'm tired. Is that true? Is our performance that that day that profound because of losing some sleep, let's say an hour or two? So that's a tricky question to answer because it's gonna it's gonna depend on the individual. It's probably gonna depend on how long they're up for. You know, a short awakening during the night, five ten minutes, and able to you know fall back asleep at that point probably isn't gonna have a huge impact because we're looking for how much time somebody's spending in overall sleep and that they're you know getting the the requisite amounts of each of those stages of sleep that their particular body needs. If somebody's up for an hour or two during the night and assuming that they're only in bed for eight or nine hours, you know, then we've cut them, let's say they're in bed for eight hours, because that's kind of a typical goal most people seem to have. You know, if we've taken away two hours of sleep, they're down to six hours. They probably aren't getting as much sleep as what they need. And we're, you know, we're good at telling ourselves like, oh, I'm fine. I can power through. Like we've got all like, it's kind of crazy. Like we have all that language of, you know, just keep going. You can sleep when you're dead. Like (laughs) these things that we say, um, that really aren't going to do us any favors. But anyway, getting back to that, if somebody is not getting enough sleep consistently, then that's problematic. So maybe one night, like, yeah, maybe there's some things that you learn during the day that aren't going to be quite as gelled into memory. Maybe you're going to be a little grouchier than normal. Your emotion regulation is not going to be fully online because you didn't sleep well enough. It's more concerning for an individual when it's happening multiple times. So then we call it insomnia. If, If somebody... Our DSM definition is three nights of low quality or low quantity sleep or less than ideal quality or quantity sleep for three months, three nights per week for three months um, is considered insomnia. And then we can have acute insomnia. That's, you know, much briefer periods of time. Um, but then, you know, when we move into insomnia, then we're looking at like this cumulative effect over time. And then maybe some of those distortions become more real like your your impact like again look look at how we define things in the DSM it's going to have an impact on social academic or occupational functioning because we're we're not getting what our body needs so let's talk about what happens when our bodies don't get enough sleep what happens to us physically emotionally cognitively what are some consequences we can expect to see so a big role of deep sleep is moving information from kind of from short-term storage to longer-term storage. So structurally, that moves it from the hippocampus into the cortex. And there's a lot of really interesting studies that you can read where they look at the impacts of different different kinds of sleep deprivation, like different parts of sleep, and what the impact of that is on consolidation of new memory and retention of learning. So the, the easiest way to put it is if we're not getting enough sleep, it's likely that newly gained knowledge or memory is not going to it's not going to gel as well as if we got enough sleep another thing that happens when we're sleeping this happens more in dream sleep is we get into deep associate pairing of new memory um, which is fascinating to me because it it talks about creativity so i learn something new during the day and now while i'm dreaming 
my brain is taking that new information and it's associating it in like these way out of the box kinds of ways with things that I might already know that are already gelled in. So I'm building like these, if you think about like these association webs of information between this new information and things that I already know. So from like a learning and memory kind of standpoint, sleep is is really important for that. Uh, from a mood regulation standpoint, we're processing emotion that's related to memory when we're sleeping, especially in dream sleep. We're uh, kind of working through some of that emotion so that uh, it's processed out and not quite as raw when we're pulling those memories up, which you know makes me think about like theories around PTSD and trauma and, and you know why do we have nightmares and there's information that that has to do with in, in folks with PTSD, the level of adrenaline in the brain is so high that the emotion doesn't process off of the dream and then the dream keeps repeating and we have those repetitive nightmares of the brain trying to work through this information but can't because you know the status of the brain with that amount of adrenaline in it doesn't allow for that emotion processing. So, but going back to, you know, not PTSD, like a typical sleeper, uh, when we have those opportunities to then, you know, process through emotion and like kind of reconnect structures in our brain, allowing like part of it is allowing the frontal lobes to be more involved in those emotion regulation centers of the brain. Then the next day we can manage our emotions better. We don't pop off as easily when somebody does something that irritates us because we can keep it in context and perspective. Uh, and you know, all you have to do is think about the last time you had a really bad night's sleep and how you might have been more frustrated or more irritable um, to see that, you know, that that plays out. From um, other functions of the body, um, you know, you mentioned prolactin. Prolactin is one of the things that's released when we sleep for everybody. You know, we think, I think uh, at least women might think about prolactin in terms of, you know, nursing a baby, but it's a, it's a hormone that everybody has in their body and it does more than, it's involved in more than just um, nursing babies. Um, but we release that when we sleep and, uh, it's important for a lot of functions, um, for immune system, you know, does a lot of like repair and regeneration and does its thing kind of when we're sleeping. So, uh, from all of those standpoints, uh, sleep is important. I remember reading that basically all medical illness that stress and sleep basically will always be impacted by those two factors. And either they affect them directly or they are profoundly affected by them. And whether that's heart disease, like I said, diabetes, um, but these uh, obesity, all these different factors are, are really based in our bodies having the opportunity to repair and restore as we sleep and then facing a new day. So we provide the information that you've given us as psychoeducation to our clients. How do we also approach this from an intervention standpoint, other than just psychoeducation and saying, well, let's talk about your sleep hygiene and you, you know, use of blue exactly. light before bed. What are some strategies, knowing your background in CBTI, how do we actually apply this? Sure. So I think there's two levels. So there's general information that probably every practitioner should have in their back pocket to share with their clients. So the psychoeducation, a lot of stuff that we've already talked about, um, and then you know, more specific information about sleep hygiene, and probably act asking some really directive questions about sleep. So rather than asking, you know, the typical question that I think I was trained to ask on is, um, have you noticed any significant changes in your eating and sleeping? Like I asked that to get at depressive, you know, symptoms of changes in appetite, changes in sleep. Um, and an interesting study that I came across by Bhaskar um, et al. 2016, they looked at levels of insomnia 
um, and found that 27% of the patients in their, their study who had insomnia didn't perceive that they had insomnia. So we're not even self-reporting that we have insomnia. So they were looking at more like what are the qualitative factors that show that this person actually does have insomnia. So we can't just ask, are you having trouble sleeping? We should probably be asking how many hours a night are you sleeping? How many hours a night are you in bed? How many hours of night are you in bed but not asleep? So then we get at uh, sleep efficiency, basically. Are you laying in bed and staring at the ceiling? You might be in bed for nine hours, but if four of them you're looking at the ceiling and not sleeping, that's probably insomnia. Well, and it's funny you bring that up too because the other conversation I've had with clients as well is like, how many hours are you in bed but not doing really what a bed is for, which is sleep and sex? Um, So when we're balancing a checkbook, when we're, um, you know, writing an email to our child's teacher, all of these things are training our brains to be activated. But I think we can easily overlook those questions you just said, where it's like, well, when you're in bed, what are you doing? And evaluating that. That's that's one, especially with my teens, that especially now during the pandemic, they're going to school on their bed. And so it's like, how could they have a positive sleep association when they're sitting there through the slog of pandemic learning online on their laptop and then expect to be able to put that down and fall asleep. Yes. And thinking back to like that hour before bed and keeping that bedtime routine sacred, like keeping the bed sacred, like as you said, that is for sleep and intimacy. That really should be it. Everything else, you know, get out of the bed. Even if you're, you know, sitting in a chair across the room for a teenager who maybe doesn't have the luxury of having their own office at home, you know, get somewhere else to to do the schoolwork, to talk on the phone, you know, with your friend, to have an argument with a family member, like get as much of that as possible, if possible out of the bedroom, but definitely out of the bed. So that bed is associated with sleep. So, you know, so that asking the right questions, you know, how much are you sleeping? How many hours are you in bed? How many hours are you in bed, but awake? Are you feeling rested when you wake up? Do you feel like the quality or quantity of your sleep is having an impact on, you know, your social, emotional, academic, occupational, functioning, relationships that are important to you. Asking those kinds of questions is important. Um, We also need to have like, I think some numbers in our back pocket that like one in 10 people has insomnia is kind of like an official number, but I've also read other things that suggest up to 30% of people have insomnia. And then when you look at, we're not typically in a mental health outpatient office, we're not necessarily pulling in a wide sample of the population. We're pulling in people that are already dealing with some mental health um, difficulties. So 14 to 20% of adults with insomnia have major depression, uh, or at least symptoms of major, major depression. We have overlap between depression and sleep issues, between anxiety and sleep issues, between mood disorders and sleep issues. So we really need to be asking the right questions and um, be prepped to have those conversations. So then we can go into giving, you know, general psychoeducation. We can, for folks who are struggling with sleep, we can give them sleep hygiene strategies. So those are things about what we can do to optimize our physical environment, optimize what we're doing during the day, um, to set ourselves up for a good night's sleep. Uh, and those include, you know, environmentally having low light, low noise in the bedroom, um, working to reduce light in general in the hours leading up to bed. So, you know, in a house that has a lot of overhead lighting, maybe get rid of the overhead light and just have task light, just have enough light that you need to see what you're doing, uh, so that you're not just sending these signals to your brain that it's high noon when it's, you know, nine o'clock at night. Um, having a cooler house in the evening, like having your thermostat set to drop down in the evening is helpful. Um, 
other other things you know that we already mentioned keeping the bed sacred uh trying what we want to do is is not associate anxiety worry and negativity with being in bed uh, which gets into in in cbti uh, we talk about both stimulus control and sleep restriction that we'll talk about a little bit more later that go into more kind of more significant rules for how we use the bed and what we're doing um, in bed versus in other parts of the house uh, chemically we want to be thinking about like what chemicals are on board somebody's body and educating them about that so educating them about and really being aware of what uh, substances that they're using during the day, including caffeine. And for folks that are struggling with sleep, you know, definitely either reducing caffeine, stopping it at a certain point in the day, or if possible, cutting it out altogether to see what impact that has can be really helpful. So one thing I have a question about, and I know we're starting to get kind of compressed on time, what about the use of sleep medications? You know, definitely you can get melatonin, Benadryl, things like that freely. Then lots of people self-medicate. They use alcohol, use cannabis to help them fall asleep. How do those substances impact the quality of our sleep? Just if you can just take a moment to just kind of speak to that. Yeah. So something that was an eye-opener for me when I read it in uh, Matthew Walker's book um, that I'll talk about in the resources he talks about when we are using hypnotics to help with sleep, the EEG patterns of our brain look more like anesthesia than like sleep. So we're not inducing like a quote unquote normal sleep with the sleep that our brain would naturally get to um, when we're using those substances. So the, the you know, World Health Organization, sleep organizations and whatnot have placed CBTI as a first-line treatment above medications for sleep. So really that's probably, you know, if we're just going to go by that, that's where folks should start before going on to using medications. Thank you. Thank you for, for addressing that piece. So with the time we have left, so it sounds like one of the critical parts is this assessment, really assessing what the actual um, issues and needs are, and then psychoeducation, providing kind of opportunities for learning, then where do you go? And knowing that this really in and of itself is its own podcast, but if we're just going to do kind of a, a shallow dive into some of the interventions, what does that look like? Sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI incorporates the psychoeducation pieces. It incorporates uh, assessment of sleep, assessment of thoughts about sleep, so dysfunctional thoughts about sleep. Um, often we'll start by having people log their sleep, which is super helpful because, you know, again, we're not great reporters of how much we slept, but not only logging our sleep, but logging like what sleep hygiene kind of points we're checking off, like what are we doing to maintain sleep. Um, and CBTI has really good outcomes. So 80% of folks benefit in four to eight weeks. Um, with reduced sleep onset latency and uh, wake time after sleep onset can drop by 50 to 60%. And when we talk about CBTI, so that's cognitive behavioral therapy, and then what's the I? Insomnia, for insomnia. So yeah, exactly. So the you know, back to what we were just talking about, the, the problems with medication, you know, not only is the sleep quality different, but medications have the risk of tolerance and dependence. When we do CBTI, there's not like tolerance and dependence aren't really part of it. We're teaching skills and, you know, similar to other kind of brands or flavors of cognitive behavioral therapy, we're, we're hopefully teaching people skills 
so that they can be their own therapists in the future. Because that's one of the issues with insomnia. It's likely to come back, unfortunately. So relapse prevention is part of it, but we're also giving people the skills so that if it does come back, you know, they can take a deep dive into their sleep hygiene and analyze, you know, what, have they, what changes have they made that maybe are impacting their sleep. Uh, they can, you know, go through some cognitive restructuring exercises, um, you know, on their own, or they know, oh, I need to get back in with my therapist and kind of get like a booster to, to manage, you know, a current bout of insomnia. So CBTI uh, itself, you know, starts with some assessment. Um, there are some different tools that people can use. There's sleep logs. There's, uh, for, for folks who are listening, the National Sleep Foundation has a sleep diary that I often will have clients use. It's a great free tool that's out there. Uh, there's checklists that go through uh, beliefs about sleep that, you know, are then really useful because then we can target those particular beliefs when we do restructuring. Uh, we also teach people a behavioral model of insomnia. So there's, there's, it's called a 3P model. So there's predisposing, precipitating, and perpetuating factors for insomnia. So predisposing factors are the things that we just naturally bring with us as a human being. So it could be we have some family and genetic tendencies towards insomnia. We might be a more anxious person, a more perfectionistic person. We might have a higher metabolic rate, so our body runs hotter and it's going to be a little bit harder to sleep. The precipitating factors are things that happen before a bout of insomnia. So they often changes. It could be something traumatic. It could be something happy. It could be like a wedding or a baby being born, but like a major change that happens that uh, has an impact on sleep. Uh, could be an accident that creates pain. It could be, you know, anything that kind of disrupts our life. The thing with that precipitating factor, though, is it's usually, sometimes, not always, but it's often like a time-contained issue that leads to a change in sleep. But then we have these perpetuating factors that come in, and that's the thoughts about sleep. So if I have, say, a car accident, um, and I'm upset by it, and I'm uncomfortable, and I'm angry or whatever other feelings I'm having and my sleep gets disrupted for a week or two and then things start to settle. I feel better. The insurance claims are managed. You know, I feel okay, but I've now associated sleep with worry about sleep. Like the insomnia piece has kind of taken on its own life and the thoughts about sleep become perpetuating factors. And even though the precipitating event has resolved, now I'm in this cycle of insomnia. Right. Great. I, I'm glad you covered those three. So again, for our listeners, what are the three Ps? They're predisposing factors, precipitating factors, and perpetuating factors. And so when we're conceptualizing interventions, really thinking through which of these or what combination of these are impacting this person's sleep and quality. So we're going to assess you know, in those different areas and we're going to educate them you know, about that. So provide some psychoeducation on how the insomnia piece kind of has taken on its own, it's kind of grown its own legs, so to speak. Um, but then that's why that's where these behavioral methods and, and cognitive restructuring methods come into play. So we're going to take that as all part of the assessment and education, we're going to share information about good sleep hygiene. Um, and then two pieces that people might be less familiar with are sleep restriction and stimulus control. So stimulus control, we've already alluded to the stimulus, the conditioned response is sleep. The stimulus is the things that lead up to sleep. So it's going to be the bed. So we're going to associate things in the bedroom, you know, with sleeping. We're going to do everything we can to can to get people to bed when they are the most sleepy. So that goes back to, you know, that that process S and process C. We want sleep drive to be high when we get to bed so that we have the best chance of falling asleep 
quickly and, and effortlessly when we get to bed. So that's, we're going to restrict napping, which I always tell, tell clients when I share this, like, you're not going to like hearing me say this. And I'm sorry that I'm saying this, but if you want to have the best chance of getting good night's sleep, you need, you do need to kind of power through the day until you get to a reasonable bedtime hour. Um, and that might mean, you know, you don't nap, you have a day where you're, you didn't, you're running on fumes, so to speak. Um, but that's hopefully we're going to build up that process S, that that chemical in the brain, that when you get to bed, you're going to be primed and ready to go to sleep and hopefully get a better sleep. So that's, that's stimulus control. Sleep restriction uh, for folks who aren't getting enough sleep. What sleep restriction does is try to compress sleep into a more efficient period of time. So the example I gave earlier, if you have somebody who's in bed for eight hours and they're sleeping for five hours and they're up for three, that's not super efficient sleep. You know, they have a lot of time when they're actually awake. So sleep restriction, we compress back to where they're at or roughly where they're at with sleep, you know, so, and, and the recommendations is that nobody go below five hours. We don't ever recommend that people be sleeping for less than five hours because we do need our sleep. Uh, but we kind of compress the sleep and then we start to like let it expand as people are successful because we're reducing the awake time in bed. We're going to start associating bed with sleep, bed with positive thoughts, bed with thoughts that I have um, efficacy, like I have agency, I can do this, it, it can work out for me, um, all that kind of thing. So I think those those two pieces in the sleep restriction, especially, are kind of the harder parts to swallow, maybe of CBTI, but they're they're pieces that really do wind up uh, benefiting folks in the long run. So, Dr. Dwyer, thank you for kind of doing the shallow dive in an overview of CBTI. So, as we wind up today, how do people learn more about this? And one book that I want to throw out that I know is really helpful for me, um, not only in my own experience of insomnia, but in my work with clients is a book called Say Goodnight to Insomnia. Um, and there are so many books out there. But this one is by um, Jacobs and Benson and goes through a sleep diary and really paying attention to some of those beliefs and correcting them. What are the other kind of sources for you that have been really impactful? So the book that I, I referred to earlier, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, that's a great book for anybody who kind of, like if you find this an interesting topic, all the data and research, I think it's really fascinating um, and really makes a good argument for why we need to get a good night's sleep. Uh, a couple others that I have uh, on my bookshelf, um, Insomnia by Charles Warren is a kind of like more of a textbook around insomnia. Uh, the National Sleep Foundation is a great resource, so you can go to go find them online, and they have all kinds of articles linked in there. There's a sleep diary that you can download there, um, other useful tools to read about and use. Uh, one book that I've used is the Insomnia Workbook, so similar to the one that you referenced, more of a self-help guide for a client to use, but certainly, especially for a clinician who doesn't have a lot of background in this, it's going to give... A, a whole lot of information about sleep, sleep hygiene, education about sleep, um, and all of those kinds of good things. And a great resource that I found uh, is cbtiweb.org, um, which is a training put out by Daniel Taylor and colleagues on CBTI, and it was created for the military, uh, though the training itself you know, 
there's talk about military and deployment and special issues that come up in military, but it's it's de definitely a general training on CBTI. It's free, and if you complete it, uh, you get six and a half CEs. You get a certificate for that that are APA accredited. So that's a great re resource for people that either want to move into this direction and, and do more CBTI or just learn enough about it that you can you know, support clients until you get to a point of saying, okay, you know, this is more specialized than what I do. And here's a provider in the community that, you know, can kind of jump on and, and serve as collateral support for that client. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Um, again, Dr. Kimberly Dwyer. And for folks who want to get in touch with you and learn more about your work, how do they do that? Sure. So I have a private practice and I also support private practice uh, owners, launchers, dreamers, um, all that kind. My uh, general clinical website is drkimdwyer.com. And my coaching website is intentionalprivatepractice.com. Those are probably the best places. I also have a Facebook group for, uh, for practice builders that's uh, called Intentional Private Practice Community. So people can find me there as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dwyer. This has been really enlightening. And hopefully all of us will get a better sleep tonight <laughs> because of this conversation. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.